This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones. Okay, I just finished the interview you are about to listen to, and it is one of my favorite of all time. It's why I started this podcast, so I could get very interesting people to talk to me for an hour and let me ask them a bunch of questions. Katie Faust is the founder and director of a children's rights organization, Them Before Us. She has an incredible new book that you need to read by the same name, uh, both the link to the book and the link to the organization will be in the show notes. But her organization seeks to um, advance the interests of children. And this forces her to, and her organization, to uh, kind of stand on the third rail of some of the most controversial issues like abortion, um, uh, same-sex couple adoption, reproductive technologies, and... In, in the midst of all of this, her organization that has, you got to check out the website and see the stories and look up the about on the about page. It's made up of a, a, a really a great collection of human beings. They say that they're ordinary people willing to state the cost that children as well as society pay when children are deprived of their fundamental needs. Uh, they're exceptional people, but they're not going to say that about themselves, right? They're not going to put on the website, yeah, we're probably the coolest people you're ever going to meet, and we're all together in one organization, because that's what it looks like to me. So let's just get on with the interview. But before that, this episode is being brought to you by Movie to Movement. Check out our latest film, Divided Hearts of America. We're on Amazon, we're at Redbox, and pretty much everywhere else you may go to download your movies. This episode is also being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project. We are in the middle of our spring fundraiser. We need to raise uh, another $40,000 to reach our quarter goal. Go into the show notes and make your donation and support the great work of the Vulnerable People Project, which is to stand in solidarity with the vulnerable from the child in the womb to the child in our four. And as always, you know, you know it. Here it comes, the pillow. This episode is being brought to you, as always, by my pillow. You should have the pillows. If you don't have the pillow... One of my favorite podcasts, Taylor Marshall says, if you don't pray the rosary, you're not on the team. If you don't have a my pillow, are you really are you really on the team? I'm not saying you're not on the team. I'm just saying, are you on the team? And if you are on the team, you're not sleeping as well as the rest of us. And uh, even if you have the pillow, do you have the Giza Dream Sheets? You need the sh- Dream Sheets. You need that wonderful mattress topper. But right now, there is a 40% discount for these amazing new slippers. It took Mike over two years to develop. It is made with my pillow foam. It's impact gel, helps prevent fatigue. They can be worn inside and outside. Go to mypillow.com, use the code Jones for deep, deep discounts on these slippers and all the other wonderful my pillow products. So let's interview the great, the wonderful, the courageous Katie Faust from Them Before Us.
Aloha, Katie Faust. Welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Aloha, right back to you. Um, I would love to go to Hawaii now. If you want to just transport me there, then I can say aloha like I really mean it. But for now, I'm saying aloha from sad Seattle. So aloha. Well, first of all, there's a lot of people from Hawaii in Washington State. So you can say I'm sure you have friends from Hawaii because we had reciprocity for in-state tuition for college. And you steal some of our best football players, your universities. Yeah. Shamelessly. I've got, I seriously probably have one up the street from me. They run, um, a, they do all kinds of stuff, but they do, um, offer great mochi to the neighborhood. So, what? um, yeah, we'll take them. Mm-hmm. You have neighbors that yeah. just bring you mochi? Yeah. Uh, like, like we've got frozen cartons of it in our freezer, homemade. See, this so, is what yeah, happens. We'll take all of your great cooks and your football players. You know, the Democrat Party destroying the state of Hawaii is blessing the world because my daughters make spam musubis for our entire neighborhood. (laughs) So the diaspora diaspora is bringing our cuisine (laughs) to the world. I love it. That's a yeah, good... that's right. And and these Hawaiians up the street are also like marathon runners, so they are discipling me in all of my running techniques. So yes, I will take them. Oh, praise God! Well, you can say aloha like you mean it. I do, and I'm in aloha, Texas JT. now. Right. Well, you sounded like you meant it. First of all, I okay. This is why you're on the show. I want to let you know how you got on the show. Um, okay, great. We're very discriminating in our guests. This is hard to get on the show. It's you know, it's like mm. oh, if you yeah. get an Oprah. Then maybe you have a chance at us. But what happened was yeah. I texted a feminist friend of mine, a snarky text. Where are you feminists on embryo adoption and how brutal it is to women, their preborn children, to the, the mothers, everyone involved? And then she said, well, you know who you need to talk to? There's this, this group, Them Before Us, and they take on all these really hard issues. And you need to talk to Katie Faust. And then I, I looked you up, I read your book, I, I looked at your website, and you have one of the most eclectic and beautiful organizations I've ever come across. And you're very brave. I think you take on all of, it's interesting, your, your mission is just very simple, to uh, advance the rights of the child. But what it turns out to be is sort of all these hot button issues, all these sacred cows to the gods of the city that we're not allowed to touch, at the end are really brutal to children. And That's right. so you you didn't go out, you didn't set out obviously to step on every third rail, um, but you, you as an organization <laughs> kind of do, don't you? Yeah, and and in fact, um, I, I tell people I said this at the Heritage Foundation. We were doing a panel there. Um, and I said this, I said, give me enough time and I'll piss you off too. I mean, like when it comes to the rights of children, you know, our organization, um, believes in their right to life, but we also recognize that there's hundreds of awesome pro-life groups out there. So what we really put our chips on is children's right to their mother and father to be known and loved and raised by their mother and father whenever possible. And that is something that nobody is doing. And because nobody has been doing it the rights of children in their primary relationships have been shredded and trampled on. And the fallout um, is lifelong, not just for the individual child, but for all of society as well. And so um, there's all these issues that we think are completely separate issues, right, that don't go together. Uh, but really, you know, things like no-fault divorce or the definition of marriage or reproductive technologies or embryo adoption or surrogacy or same-sex parenting. Um, and we think, well, those are all totally disconnected and we say no they're not 
it's all one issue. It's all different manifestations of the same question, which is, are you respecting children's rights or are you disregarding children's rights? And so at them before us, we say them, the children, need to come before us, the adults. And that kind of mindset, number one, um, means that every adult has to sacrifice. No adult gets a pass in the children's rights world. You know, we often say single or married, gay or straight, you need to conform to the rights of children. But the other awesome thing is because you're standing firmly on the rights of children and insisting all adults conform to those rights, you get to build a pretty ridiculous coalition of Christians and Muslims and gay people and singles and um, people who are married and children have divorced themselves and kids who are raised by same-sex parents and children who are created through sperm and egg donation. And you've got all of these people that you wouldn't think are going to be able to work together, working together. Because when you stand firmly on the fundamental rights of kids, you actually can build a pretty diverse coalition. Well, I was looking at your stories and I was looking at people involved with your organization. And I thought, I want to know all of these people. You need to hold a conference just so I can meet these people and try to become friends I, with them. I need them. to hold a conference so I can meet all these people. Yeah, they're <laughs> I mean, just fantastic. Are, yeah, and they live all over the world. I mean, a lot of these people, I've got people running my, my Facebook pages overseas. Um, that I've never met, you know, people who live even just on the other side of the country that, that I've written amicus briefs for that I've never met. Um, but it's, that's, thank God, you know, the internet brings us lots of curses, but there's a, a blessing too. And that is that you can find the people who are willing to take high risks and lose friends for the sake of putting themselves between um, these terrible ideas and vulnerable kids. Yeah, well, before we, that's what I want to ask you. You just said take risks, and I want to get to why you take risks. At your, on your website, it says, um, you say something, you know, that you're just, you're not scholars or something like that. You're not professional politicians or activists, but they all seem very talented and, 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 and radically courageous, radically thoughtful to children. And as a filmmaker, I always look at what is someone's call to adventure. And so when I look mm. at you, I know there's something that gives you the courage to do this, right? And that's what I would like to know. Why are you doing this um, in a way that takes so much courage? Well, um, I, I'm not courageous. Um, I, and, and I was afraid for a really, really long time because, you know, on that scale of like truth teller and grace giver, like most of us kind of fall somewhere on that spectrum I'm much more on the grace giver side than the truth teller side. And so the grace giver in me doesn't want to talk about the hard things, doesn't want to, you know, confront, but um, I'd rather stay, I'd rather keep my friends <laughs> and avoid the hard conversations, you know? And so I did that for years and years and years and years, but, um, but you, finally you, got to the but place. you did eventually speak, right. speak out, right? I did because um, I heard very powerful forces in our national conversation lying about kids. Um, lying that, you know, it, it primarily came up for me in the gay marriage debate where I felt like the other side, the gay marriage side was saying kids don't care if they're raised by two moms or two dads. They love it. And what that really means is kids don't care if they've lost their mom or dad. And, you know, my husband is a pastor. We did youth ministry together for decades <laughs> before that point. And I'd never met a kid who had lost their mom or dad who did not suffer a a primal lifelong wound as a result. And so that's what finally forced me to 
get to that place where I was willing to take the risk because I'm, I said, you know, you're not just lying about kids. You're lying about kids in a way that is going for life. Um, and now I know, you know, that lie, that narrative, um, that prioritization of adult desire above the rights of kids is actually prominent and prevalent in every conversation we have about marriage and family. Um, kids are constantly um, made to sacrifice for what adults want. And every conversation we have about marriage and family, no matter the topic, obsessively focuses on what adults want, almost always to the detriment of the child. It's always the kid has to sacrifice so the adults can live as they please. And um, so, and that makes me angry. It makes me really, really angry. But they don't even have I've the courage to seen... say that, right? They don't have the courage to admit that. They sell it like it's for the child. Well, they, they sell it like it's compassionate. Be, yeah. Or if I'm happy, the kids will be happy, right? Or, um, you know, I have a right to this. I want it. So the kids should be happy about it. And, and that's, we talk a lot about that at Them Before Us, where um, when adult desire is prioritized above the rights of children, there's sort of a role reversal between parent and kid. The parent normally is supposed to be the adult in the room that sacrifices, accommodates, and is understanding towards the needs of the kid. But when adult desire is prioritized above children's rights, it's the child who has to be accommodating and understanding and sacrificing for the adult. So it's almost like the kid has to parent the adult. They have to be the most mature person in the relationship. Um, and I've seen how that goes in real life, you know, up close with friends or kids in our ministry or whatever. And um, that's an injustice. Sometimes kids lose their parents due to tragedy. But if kids lose a parent because an adult chooses for it to be that way, that's an injustice. And, um, and that was enough to kind of push me out of my, my safe bubble of quiet anonymity and into the place where I said, you know, I'm willing to take some of this on. And, and I wasn't alone. You know, there's plenty of other people who have joined us. Do you know, do you find that you just, I guess most, I'm 49 years old. I think most people, and I don't know how old you are, and in my generation, I, my, my mother had me at 16. I never lived in a two-parent household, which I guess made us ahead of our time. I read in your book that less than half of ch children in America today are living in a two-parent household, which is really tragic. You know, my mother was married and divorced, I think, five times before I mm. dropped out of high school the day I turned 17 and joined the Army. Um, and was responsible for a teen pregnancy myself is how the cycle repeats. And I think that, do you just, I, I find that if you lived or were raised like me or around any kid, like how I was raised, you wouldn't have to be told this, but do you find because they build these public pieties around these policies that, that your organization, do you, do you get people like, thank you for reminding me what I already knew? Like I was, yeah. I was acknowledging a public piety, but then when, I hear you or I go to your website or I read your book. They're like, you know what? I knew this already. Why was I kneeling before these public pieties that are bizarre? So a lot of that is, is it. Like a lot of people say, you've, I've always kind of known this was true, but you gave me some words. You know, I've had a guy who wrote me um, and said, I, I started reading your book because I'm an adoptive father, but it was your chapter on divorce that made me, I handed the book to my wife and said, I need you to read the divorce chapter because I've always tried to explain to my wife why I was so hurt and harmed by my parents' divorce, but I just was never able to formulate it in a way that she could understand. 
Um, and so you helped me even explain my own experience to my own wife. And so what we've tried to do is really simplify things. You know, this is like we said, um, the same principles are going to apply to all of these different conversations. And it really is just one question. Are you elevating the rights of children and their need for the love and relationship of their mother and father? And are all adults doing the hard thing so that kids don't have to lose that mother and father? Or are you minimizing their needs? Are you ignoring their needs? Are you expecting them to accommodate you as adults? And so we can look at that template. It's really just what kind of a template that we can use to kind of lay over the top of any question. Um, and so that simplification has really helped. And I hear from a lot of people that say, I can't unsee it, right? I cannot unsee this now. Now that I know that kids have a right to their mother and father, now that I see the harm that's done when it's separated, now that I understand the implications for their life as a child, but also as an adult, I can't unsee it. And now I see that every conversation, every headline, it's always about the adults. I mean, like Bill and Melinda Gates announced their divorce, right? And it's just all about the divorce settlement and how much money they're getting. And, and I'm like, hi, they have three kids, you know, their three kids' lives are just being upended right now. And so now people will write me and say, oh my gosh, look at this article about a single man who wants to be a dad through surrogacy. Look at how they didn't mention the kid at all. It's just all about his struggles. And he was rejected by five different surrogates. And now finally he found a woman who with $50,000 is willing to carry this child for him. Look, they don't mention the kid at all. And that's what we want. We want to flip the script. We want people to start seeing all these questions from the perspective of the real victims. And that's kids. When we get these questions wrong, it's kids that suffer. And once you know this template and can lay it over the top of all these questions, um, you, you have somewhat easy access to good personal decisions and good policy decisions um, once you kind of know how to look at this from the perspective of the child. Yeah, it's a culture of thoughtful. You know, one thing in reading your book that, that just burned was burned into my mind, it's either we sacrifice for our children or we sacrifice our children to us. Like there's no middle way. That's right. It's either right. I'm choosing. Someone is going to do the hard thing, right? Someone has to do the hard thing. We just think it's the adults that should have and to do only, the And only the adult has the choice. Like the kid has no choice. The kid's not choosing to be sacrificed on the altar of, of his dad's desires or, or whatever. Um, right. It's the adult. It's, it's, you know, my wife and I, my, me coming from divorce, my, my wife coming from divorce, our first year of marriage, we were both adult converts. I was 30 and she was like 27, I guess, when we both were adult converts to Christianity. And our first year of marriage, like we said to each other, if A, you weren't pregnant and B, we weren't Christian, we would be, we'd be getting divorced right now. And it was just because we both came from families that that was the answer to a problem is divorce. And yeah. now it's 15 years later, and through God's grace, we were able to knit it together. I also think that if we both weren't children of divorce, if we weren't Christians, and she wasn't pregnant, and we weren't both children of divorce, although it was probably that being children of divorce that was driving us towards that impulse, especially me, really mostly me. Um. Mm -hmm. But it was because I knew what it was like to be shuffled around my whole life and to be a ping pong in every you know battle, an instrument, a tactic to be used in in wars against each other. That probably would have would have led to us getting divorced as well. And and here's my question: When because families now are so many of us are children of divorce, 
we know how devastating the divorce is going to be on the children. Like you said, people who read your book say, we can't unsee this, or those of us who are children of divorce can't unknow what we know. Do you think that is at the root of why we have to vilify our ex-spouse because they're the mm. ones that made it and that just inflames the sorrow for the child? Because the parents I are I think a lot of that is other. just this obsessive, obsessive focus on self-justification. Um, and there is a, a terrible, terrible trend, you know, to say, to justify. So my, my husband's a pastor. We do a lot of marriage and family counseling. We do premarital counseling. We do mid-marriage counseling. And these are difficult questions. Like, I'm never going to minimize how hard marriage is to stick it out and to get through. Um, but very, very seldom do you see a case where it's all one person's fault. You know, very, most of the time, both parties have at least some level of responsibility for the struggles that they are facing right then. Um, but I do think we have a culture that rewards this idea of I am the victim, right? I was victimized by them instead of really doing the hard work of self-evaluation and saying, how did I contribute to this, right? So, you know, I and similarly, my husband and I both came from divorced homes. Um, my parents divorced amicably. And thank goodness there was peace between them and I didn't lose a relationship with either one of them. My husband was the, um, his parents' divorce was much more contentious and he suffered greatly as a child because they did not live at peace with one another and, and went on to form other households and there was instability kind of in his life from age three when they split. But um, he, when we were dating in college, um, you know, he was so traumatized by his parents' divorce and the subsequent um, repartnering and remarriages um, that went along with that. I remember when we first got really serious in college, he, we were in his dorm room. He grabbed me by the shoulders and pulled me in and looked me in, his, in my eyes. And he said, do you understand? If we get married, we will never get a divorce. Like, are you on board with that? Because I need to know right now. I'm never doing that to my kids. Do you understand? And, you know, I was a young idiot Christian, but still, you know, and I was like, sure, you're totally hot. I'll do whatever you want. Right. But he, <laughs> he was so focused. He was like, my kids will never live through what I lived through ever. Um, so we got married soon after college and thank God has been a part of lots of different churches where we could find healthy couples that literally discipled us on how to be married to one another because we didn't know how. We needed, like, we literally need people to to build that skill into us. Um, I want to get into some examples of how we put our children, how we put ourselves before our children, some practical examples, maybe some of those third rail examples. But before we do that, you talk in your book and your organization talks a lot about the rights of the child. I'm a conservative. I've worked at the international level, worked through and with the United Nations, and so we have this fear that, that, that sometimes rights of the child is a code word for the government is now the custodian of, of your child and makes very important choices for your child that you would rather make, whether or not sure. your daughter gets an abortion or is put on the birth control pill or whatnot. Well, mm -hmm. Share with us, like, what do you mean by rights of the child and, and, and how do we manage that balance between the rights of the parents, the family, the role of the state? And how do we all partner together to make sure we put our children first? Yeah, I am working on a video um, for the Colson Center right now. They have an awesome platform called whatwouldyousay.org. 
And it's how do we answer these difficult questions, all kinds of difficult questions. I'm working on a script right now for them on children's rights. And here's what I'm going to say. Um, we don't, we should not run from the term children's rights. We need to redeem the term children's rights. The other side has so maligned and misused it and corrupted it to say things like, well, children have a right to birth control or children have a right to self-mutilation if they identify as transgender or whatever. Those are not rights. Okay, we conservatives understand what natural rights are. Our country is built on natural rights. And we give in the book um, some kind of practical examples and some philosophical underpinnings for why children indeed do have a natural right to their mother and father. And the good news is that when rights are properly understood, for example, a child's right to life, a child's right to their mother and father, those fundamental rights will never conflict with parental rights. In fact, they reinforce them and complement parental rights. And so a child's right to their own mother and father does not contradict a parent's right to their child, but it absolutely will run afoul another adult's claim to a child that does not belong to them, right? And that's actually why children's rights are so important in this conversation. Because if children do not have a right to their own mother and father, then they are really just commodities to be cut and pasted into any and all adult relationships. They really just belong to whichever adult has the money and means to acquire them. And so if children do not have a right to their own mother and father, we are now as close as we've gotten since slavery to the buying and selling of people. In fact, we argue in the book and children conceived through reproductive technologies themselves would say that's exactly what's going on in the world of reproductive technologies today. It is the buying and selling of people with complete disregard to their kinship bonds and their rights to be known and loved by the two people responsible for their existence. So we do spend a fair amount of time in chapter one talking about children's rights, their natural rights, giving some practical and philosophical underpinnings to them. Um, and you've worked at the United Nations. You know that the largest tree ever signed in the world, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child lists this as a primary right, right after a child's right to life. Um, they don't necessarily address it in the preborn stage, but once a child has been born, they say children have a right to life, and then they have a right to be known and loved by both of their parents. Um, and so you that know, it was, it was great natural flaws. law theorists that helped draft that, like Jacques Maritain, very thoughtful people. Well, yes. I'm sorry, That's I didn't mean That's the beauty of natural law. That's yes. the beauty of natural law is it's accessible to all people at all times. It does not take revelation um, to to let us know what we ought to do. We can discern that based on reason um, and, and the tools that are available to all people in all times and all places. And when you use those natural law tools, what you find is, yep, this is a primary right that needs to be defended. Um, I also tell conservatives, you guys say, I know that you're a little squeamish about children's rights language, but you already use it and you use it successfully, uh, especially when it comes to the abortion debate. You've got no problem arguing on the basis of a, of a child's right to life. And because you have stood unflinchingly on children's rights to life, you have actually made significant gains in the battle against abortion. So we need to take that mindset and that argumentation and the same powerful um, natural law explanation into children's rights on this side of the womb as well. And finally, I'll say, um, you know, nobody has any qualms with the claim that adults have a right to take their baby home from the hospital. Like we've birthed three children. Um, when we left the hospital, we didn't want just any newborn at the hospital. We wanted 
our newborn. We had a right to the baby that came from my body and from my husband's body. And conservatives wouldn't blink at that. They'd say, yes, of course. You don't need revealed religion to tell you that, right? Yeah. And on the flip side of that, guess what? That baby that you gave birth to has a right to you. That baby has a claim to you. That baby also cares who they go home with from the hospital. So I think that this is somewhat unfamiliar to conservatives, but that doesn't mean that it is not something that we need to get familiar with and that does not have a lot of um, natural law and um, social science behind it. So you don't need to be afraid, conservatives. I promise you everything's going to be okay. Well, what's interesting is you, you hear the rights, the, the inflation of rights language everywhere, except for when it comes to the legitimate rights of children. It's just yeah, left utterly that's exactly abandoned. right. When you talked that's about right. these children, and, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. There's like a delay going on. So welcome, welcome to the uh, internet age, people. Um, right. But yeah, like that's exactly right. Anything that adults really, really want is conveniently framed as a right, right? And we see that in the marriage and family debate, right? A right to marriage, um, a right to parenthood, a right to happiness, um, the right to choose. But when adult rights are Im- when adult desires are improperly framed as rights, almost always children lose their actual rights. So we need to be very clear about children's rights and then stand unflinchingly on their rights and then defend them no matter what adult group might be attacking it. You know, when, uh, the conversation I had with my sister that motivated me to text my feminist friend was she, she's, her husband's Mexican. They live in a Mexican neighborhood of Chicago called Pilsen. She said, brother, I, she called me. She goes, brother, I went to the bank. Do you know all the tellers, all of them are surrogates. They're carrying someone else's oh baby. My God. And she had asked them about it. And one of them, I guess, did it. And, the, and they've done this, I guess, more than once, some of them. And they get paid for this, right? So they get paid, um, I'm guessing, to carry the child for an affluent family. And here you have young working class women, first generation, probably Americans. And these children have, when they get older and they realize that the the very beginning of their life was sort of an exploitative relationship, that has to be really unbelievable to discover. And do you think that's why I was looking at your organization, it'll probably be a lot of these children who are now adults that were conceived of these reproductive technologies um, that will be leading the charge for the rights of children. Is that what you're seeing? Absolutely. Yep. That's exactly right. So we've been doing sperm donation that began late fifties, right? Sixties. It really got going huge boom in the seventies and eighties and nineties, especially um, sperm donation, egg donation is a little bit more recent because eggs are a lot harder to extract than sperm is. It's much riskier and more invasive and um, really has some serious health implications for women. Um, surrogacy is even newer, right? We have, we've, that, that is a very, very recent development. And so right now what we have is waves and waves of children created through sperm donations from the 70s, 80s, and 90s who are speaking up, talking about how they felt commodified, how they struggled with genealogical bewilderment because they were separated from a parent, why they are troubled that money was exchanged during their conception, how they feel commercialized, why they're concerned about the eugenics aspect of sperm donation, right? So we have fewer kids created through egg donation because those kids are still 
under 20, under 30, right? Um, and so it takes my experience in, you know, in at them before us where we catalog the stories of kids who have lost parents is it's very rare for somebody to speak out and tell their story before age 28. They have to have about 10 years of living outside the home, having a little bit of distance and time to process and some independence from their parents before they're actually able to honestly reflect on how their parents' decisions hurt them and, and then maybe anonymously speaking out about it. Um, so yes, we will. It's going to take a while. It's gonna, we need to wait until a lot of these kids created through surrogacy or egg donation um, are, it's gonna be 30 years probably before we hear some of their stories, but, but you cannot drastically violate the natural order and expect that there's gonna be no fallout for children. I mean, good heavens, the fallout just from no-fault divorce where kids still had access to their mom and dad a lot of the time, that's hard enough. But then to completely cut them off from one parent before conception and, and conceive them using the gamut of a stranger, and you think those kids are going to be fine? Well, the data we have says no, and now the stories that we have say hell no. And there's no privacy, right? I mean, with 30 or 20, what is it, 23 and me and... You know, there's going to be no privacy for them as well, right? So it's it's going to be known. To, well, yeah, that's I mean, exactly right. A lot of these kids that were conceived, especially in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, sometimes the doctors told them, "Keep it anonymous. Like, don't ever tell your kids; they'll never find out." Well, now a lot of kids are taking DNA tests when they're 25 and 35 and going, "What the hell? My dad is not my dad." Yeah, the dad's the sperm. The dad. So many times it's the doctor too, right? We're finding that out that these doctors have. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of kids they were just using their own sperm when you know when I was in college uh, in the mid 90s my dorm mate she was she lived next to me in the dorms we became friends we moved in together and she actually uh, was a stripper that was her job uh, I was a waiter we, we we shared an apartment and one day her and her friends were sitting in the living room they were watching of all things family matters okay so they're watching family matters they went to school with me but all of them worked at this club and they were talking about egg surrogacy. And it was a lot of money in the nine, like late nine, it was like 97, 98. And it was a lot of money. And they were talking about the health risks and whether or not they should do it and how much money it was. And so that's, this is who they're, you know, and these were young girls from broken homes trying to get their way through college. That's who's doing this, right? You're not having surrogates from middle class and upper middle class, two parent families. It's like this violent cycle. The family's ripped apart. These young women, mostly, who are being exploited are alone. And then you have others who, um, in a way, they chase the, the, the rabbit, you know, the mechanical rabbit around the Greyhound track, this illusion, and they wake up, to, and they're 45, and now they think they have a right to a child, and now they have to result to some of these technologies. And it's just this horrible cycle, but... Really, it's women who are suffering the most, women and children. That's exactly right. So, you know, we, you can see it especially in issues of surrogacy, right? Where when you're trying to build a baby without sex, uh, you need sperm, egg, and womb. Sperm is pretty easy to acquire and fairly cheap to purchase. Eggs are harder to acquire and more expensive. In fact, the human egg, you know, by ounce is probably the most expensive commodity on earth very hard to get to. Um, but the womb of the woman, 
a woman who's willing to rent her body for nine and a half months, that's incredibly expensive. And what we've seen across global markets is that brown women's wombs are a lot cheaper. And so you will find surrogacy clinics setting up shop in Nepal, in Thailand, in Cambodia. Nigeria is a new hotspot for this. Um, and all of these places, India, open up their markets for surrogacy companies um, because they've got lots of young, healthy brown women who are desperate for money. And so you've got these white, wealthy foreigners, whether it's same-sex or opposite-sex couples, who come in with their perfectly curated embryos, and they just need, you know, someone's womb to gestate this child in, um, and brown women's wombs are cheaper. And so that is why in many places um, across Europe, for example, it is considered a human rights violation for the sake of, because it exploits women specifically. Now, interestingly, all of those markets that I just mentioned, except Nigeria, as far as I know, India, Nepal, Cambodia, Thailand, they, they threw their doors wide open to these surrogacy clinics and then shut them within four or five years because they recognized, holy crap, these women are being completely used and exploited and babies are being trafficked, right? Like there's no tracking of where these kids go. There's no vetting or screening of the people that are purchasing them. They fly in, get their C-section baby, um, take them home, fly away. The women often have serious complications. Um, if they choose to have their own children later, they have a VBAC, which is incredibly risky. <laughs> they had top medical care. when. So they they're were giving they first world village. women babies, sometimes yes. at the sacrifice yes. of them never being allowed to have a child themselves. Yes, it's, it's both egg donation, quote unquote donation, but you're selling your eggs. Egg selling and being a surrogate are both high-risk situations that have long-term medical impact and complications for the women. I mean, taking ridiculous, crazy amounts of injections and hormones and things like that. Um, they are all high-risk pregnancies. The surrogate pregnancies are always, by definition, high-risk pregnancies. Um, there's often incredible medical fallout for the women. Um, the babies are routinely premature and um, often... Uh, these pregnancies fail at much higher rates. I mean, this is so those women you know, in the I, bank, I, those I, girls, those tellers, they're taking injections and things once for the surrogacy. You have to you have to take injections and time. You have to time things um, in order to have this child implanted in you. The okay. injections often the injections are more common for women who are um, trying to when you when you have to go retrieve somebody's eggs. Right, typically women produce one. A month, but if you're going to take all the time and cost to go harvest a woman's eggs, wouldn't it be nice to get ten or twenty or thirty instead? And so women take these heavy regimes of hormones to artificially release a higher number of eggs, so that when they extract them, they get a lot of them. I mean, it's just it is, it, and so women have incredibly terrible, um, high high risk to these injections. Um, you know, an ovary that's the size of an olive normally might balloon to the size of a grapefruit it's it, it, there's a very it, the best work that's been done on this is by the center for bioethics and culture my friend jennifer lall um did a documentary called exploitation oh, about great, all yeah, of so. the risks yeah so i'll put that in the, the show notes you want to look at yeah guys that exploitation please. will be in in the show notes yeah that's a very important yeah. movie i've I'd forgotten about that and you're right that was a powerful film when it comes to the harms of women 
on of surrogacy and egg donation, the Center for Bioethics and Culture does the best work, and they, they deserve your attention and support. Yeah, so I'll put a, a link to their website. Along with yours, it's going to be in there. I want to hit two hard issues that your organization has the courage to talk about. And, um, you know, Rene Girard, the French anthropologist from Stanford, would say that to be in solidarity with the vulnerable is to become vulnerable, that to truly serve a vulnerable community comes at a social cost. If you're being celebrated for your work for a quote-unquote marginalized community, you're actually in some sort of exploitative relationship with them um, for personal benefit because truly vulnerable communities to say really important things always comes at a social cost. So I'm going to ask you two tough questions. Uh, one is on same-sex parents. You know, um, you, we were talking before the interview, you being from Seattle I'm in Hollywood and from Hawaii. I have a lot of gay friends. The last thing you want is someone you love to think you don't love them, right? Your friends to think you think less of them. And in your book, you address uh, two-sex, two same-sex parents. Uh, what, how is that not putting the child first? So the nice one benefit of saying children have a right to their mother and father, we expect all adults to conform to those rights is when we can look at our friends who experience same-sex attraction and who would like to have a family someday, we can say to them, you're not special, right? We, we would ask of you what we ask of ourselves and what we ask of everybody, and that is to not force your children to sacrifice their rights so that you can live as you please. I say that to friends who are experiencing divorce. Um, you know, we, I have and we have as an organization say that to incredible people who are single, who have not found Mr. Right or Mrs. Right and desperately want children. No adult gets a pass. Every adult must conform to the rights of children. Um, because if you, the adult, are asking a child to sacrifice for you, that's an injustice. You know, I've had friends, now, female um, friends, tell me on that note that really want kids. They just might just go have a baby, just go get pregnant so they can not tell the guy. So that's like a great thing to yeah. say to them as well. Yeah, no, but that baby has a right to a father. That's right. That's right. And that's, I, you know, how do we, as them before us, how do we measure success? It's when every conversation and every policy decision first begins with, what about the kids? Like, sure, you've got this proposal, you've got this longing, you've got this plan for your life, you want this kind of family. What about the kids? Start with the kids and their rights and needs, and then work your way out. And you tend to come up with the right policy decision. But, um, the good news is we can love our divorced friends. We can love our single friends. We can love our friends who are in gay relationships or who experience same-sex attraction. Um, we can empathize. I mean, we can empathize with their longings and their desires. Um, just like in an unplanned pregnancy situation, we can validate a woman's fears. We can say, oh, my gosh, I can see that you're, this wasn't what you were expecting. This wasn't the plan. I'm so sorry about this difficult diagnosis that you have. And yet, no amount of adult feeling ever justifies sacrificing a child's right to life just because you're afraid or you're sad or you're scared or you don't know what to do or this wasn't your plan or whatever it is. It's the same thing when it comes to children's rights to their mother and father. No amount of adult longing or sadness or desire should justify a child losing their fundamental rights. Um, we go through a lot of detail in the book in chapter six on same-sex parenting first where we really dissect the research because there's been a lot of misinformation about the research of same-sex parenting. But the real kicker is when you read the stories of kids because what these kids are are intentionally um, motherless or fatherless kids. And 
overwhelmingly, they share some commonalities. The first one is mother hunger or father hunger. You know, kids who don't have a dad, even if they're well loved by two women, they hunger for a father. Nobody has to tell them, hey, kid, you should have a dad. They just automatically gravitate towards the men in their world. Unfortunately, a lot of the men in their world may not have the same kind of fatherly protection that their own father would likely have had for them. And so we highlight the stories of kids who experienced mother hunger or father hunger um, who were raised in two moms or two dad homes. Another huge part of this is the pressure that kids with same-sex parents face because if they were to say, hey, mom, I really want a dad, everybody in their world that they love could accuse them of being a homophobe. I mean, these days, just to say, Did I wish imagine? I had a mom or I wish I had a dad, the pressure is unreal. And it's almost a form of gaslighting. You know, we talk about that a little bit in the book that um, for kids who have two moms, you know, they're, they're in, <laughs> look, look, okay, here, let me put it this way. Every human kid that doesn't have their mom or dad in their life, I guarantee you, has fantasized at some point about who is my father, where is he, does he love me, does he think about me? That is what human kids do. That is a natural part of being a human child is who are my parents? Do I, adoptees go through this. Adoptees with loving heterosexual parents go through this. Who is my birth mother? What does she look like? Does she think about me? Do we both play the piano? Does she think about me? I think about her. Have I passed her on the street today? These are human questions that human children ask. Some kids have permission to say that kind of thing out and loud. And that child knows they Very, have a father. They know they have a father or a mother, depending. They yeah. know it's not as if it's yeah. a, it's, no, there's a father out there. And mm -hmm. who are they? You know, when I was in college, I waited tables at this restaurant, Chuck's in Waikiki. And there was this, this, lovely couple, lesbian couple that came in with their daughter, their daughter would follow me around and hold on to my shorts mm -hmm. as, and, and would, what, what do you call it? Father hunger. I'd never heard that expression before. And then after college, I was a Montessori school teacher for a year. And then I realized I was too rough and gruff to work. I kept getting this every day, Mr. <laughs> Jason, it's not the Montessori method to swing children around by their feet. Mr. Jason, uh, you oh, shouldn't that, be... because that's exactly no. what kids I know it. I knew it. They were wrong. I was, but no, I would like, Mr. Jason, you shouldn't be slam dunking on the six foot children's basketball hoop for the children. So I said, okay, Montessori school is not for me, but I knew, I knew who the children were that didn't have a father in their life because they, they clung to me and um, they would just look at you almost with this like mysterious, like, who is this, this, these creatures, these men, they're different, you know, than what I have at home. And um, kids don't need to be told that they should have a dad. They know it and they want it instinctually. And well, you just I said that, that children you know, from same-sex couples who wish they had a, knew their father, they will dare call them bigots. Is yeah. So I, I actually just so I get these emails all the time from kids who have same-sex parents. And when I say kids who have same-sex parents, I'm not talking about kids under 18. We don't mm -hmm. talk to kids who are under 18. We're talking about kids who have already left the home. Or Adults. Adult of children of same-sex couples. Right. That's right. But even they will say, hey, I'm writing you and don't publish this anywhere. But I just wanted to say that I was created to sperm donation and I have two moms and I've always wondered who my dad is. But you cannot say anything. Do you understand? Like, I can't even talk to my family about this because if I do, they are going to accuse me of being a gay hater just for saying I want a dad. Right. And so 
we look at kind of the different demographics, you know, of kids who have lost their parents and they all share something in common. Um, and that is like what I said earlier, that they have to take on the adult responsibility, they have to function like the adults in terms of they have to support their parents, they have to be understanding and accommodating and sacrificial. Um, and their parents get to kind of live as they please, right? That's the common thread that weaves itself through all these different stories we tell in the book. But the difference is each of these different groups, like kids with same-sex parents, kids created through reproductive technologies, um, kids of divorce, they all have distinct struggles as well. And one distinct struggle that kids with LGBT parents have is this, the entire world tells them that they have to validate their parents' choices and identities. And if they don't, they are a bigot. And so it keeps them very quiet. It's got a lot of psychologically detrimental aspects. To and they know their parents went actually, through a lot, right? So they already know that their their parents had challenging time. And, and the last thing they yeah. want to do is burden them or hurt them. But now you, like you said, but well, now again, them, right? they and they love them. And, and, and the la- but now again, you, you worded it perfectly. But now they're in the role of the adult having to think about the feelings of their parents, which we know they had a challenging, right? If you're a, if you're an adult now and your parents were same-sex parents in the 80s or 90s, of course it was a very awkward, challenging time. They were there for it, so they understand it. The last thing they want to do is, and they were loved by their parents, and their parents did their best, they, the last thing they want to do is hurt them. Um, and uh, But now they have been forced to play the role of the parent, the one who is yeah. shouldering the burden of the of the of the the struggle of that relationship and that's really really sad i'm i'm going through it right now because if you i have depending on how you count between seven and 14 siblings so if you have halves steps steps of steps halves of halves steps i was raised with steps Mm -hmm. i wasn't and with this comes a constellation of step parents right and i have to talk to all my half brothers step brothers half brothers of my step brothers uh half sisters (laughs) of my half sisters you know and what now is we're getting older it's like how do all of these adults, all of these step parents and former step parents, they place demands on all of us as if we wanted to knit together 14 adults into this family as parents of some type or other. And so now the children are all forced, even as they get much older, to manage these all of these bizarre relationships. So it's not just with LGBT yeah. couples, it's divorce and remarriage is it's in so many families, the children are really enslaved with the responsibility of managing these, these families. Yeah. Well, and we, you know, I, I submitted an amicus brief with a woman who, um, you know, I, I have a mom who's in a same sex relationship. They've been together for, oh my gosh, 35 years. I love my mom's partner. I do not consider myself to be a woman with two moms. I have a mom and a dad. Well, you said um, your mom, but I, your, your mom, my mother. Yes. Yeah. So when my parents divorced, my dad dated and remarried, but my mom repartnered with a woman. And so okay. I've been very close to all, them both all my life, you know, and you love her. Um, you love both I, of them. You love all oh, of them. I love both of them. Right. Yeah. Her partner is not my mom. Her partner is my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom is my mom. And most of what I do well as a mom, I do because that's how my mother parented me. And so lesbians can be great moms. And I'll be the first person to say that because I've lived it, but lesbians cannot be fathers and kids desire a mother and a father and kids are harmed and they crave it when they don't get it. And so when we 
um, when Obergefell, the case that legalized gay marriage for the entire country, um, I submitted an amicus brief to that case with another woman who had two moms. Um, and what we said really was kids with gay parents are not special. They're not. Kids with gay parents, you know, gay parenting is just one of many ways that kids experience brokenness in their family. And it's just like what you said, right? Kids who have multiple, who have divorced parents and remarriages, I mean, they've got their own way of, you know, their own manifestation of brokenness in the family. Kids who have created, been created through reproductive technologies, that's another manifestation of brokenness in the family, right? And so I think that on the conservative side, we have spent a lot of time and energy focusing on gay marriage and same-sex parenting and conveniently ignored divorce and remarriage and reproductive um, technologies. How many and the big, use, big, that's right, and the use of reproductive big technologies by groups, heterosexual couples, big groups. I won't name, you probably know big pro family groups in the nineties received a lot of money from reproductive technology companies to remain silent on, on in vitro fertilization. Um, and that's sad. It's always easy to, yeah. to point out, uh, you know, how other, People are doing it wrong, but how, how we're doing it wrong is, is the hard yeah. part. But so I think that was your the inciting last- incident because um, I must have somehow missed that that, that was, what you know, uh, the, your, your mom, you were raised by your mom and her partner. So is that what gave you the courage? Well, I mean, or no, no because no, no, you don't want to be thought not- of as a bigot. Like the last thing you want is your mom and maybe even more so her partner because you're secure, more secure in your relationship with your mom, but her friend or your friend, as you call it. The last thing, I'm sure she was there for you a lot. And the last thing you want her to think is that you don't appreciate everything she did for you as a child. Well, um, thankfully, it was really just my mom and dad co-parenting me. Okay. And, you know, whoever they were, they were, were partnering with was not parenting me. And okay. in that sense, my, my mother and father were very wise. Note to people who have gone through divorce. Don't have your new spouse or your new partner suddenly jump into a parenting role because that is a recipe for disaster, right? You yeah. are the parent. You, the, the your ex is the parent you guys better do a lot of parenting double down on the parenting don't think that just because this person's married to you or dating to you that your kid's suddenly going to see them as an equal or as an authority what a recipe for disaster that is um but no i never considered like her partner to be my mom we've just had an amicable relationship um but i will say that that is one thing that kept me quiet for a long time because when your primary relationships and some of the closest people in your life are gay or lesbian, and you're told that if you oppose gay marriage, that makes you an anti-gay hater or a bigot, um, that's a lie, right? But it's a very powerful lie that I think held a lot of sway on a lot of Americans leading up to gay marriage. Um, and you have you didn't you didn't focus on that because I mentioned it briefly in the introduction, but this is not. Oh, you uh, caught me! I, you caught me! Not, I, I skipped the introduction. <laughs> Oh, I was yeah, I was going to read it right before the interview, and I saved it for last, and oh. then I didn't get to it. <laughs> well, there you go. You now caught my you technique. Have a chance. So, to, um, you listeners have a chance to catch him um, on the fly, but but this is not really a, a story about me. Like I I didn't I didn't come into this with a big chip on my shoulder or a mm-hmm. grievance. Like I said, you know, my mom and my dad did a good job, as good as you can, post divorce of of both staying connected to me um, and I never lost the relationship with either one of them. Um, You know, in fact, it really did give me a genuine love and comfort with the LGBT community. Right. So it's really easy for me to love them and build bridges with them because I spent a lot of time in my childhood in that world. And 
thankfully it, it makes it a little bit easier for kids with same-sex parents to feel like um, they might be able to find a voice with us um, because they know that we're not gay haters, which I think is a lot of their fear, you know? So, um, yeah, I'm glad that you missed it because it's really not a central part of, of any of this. Yeah. Well, I, I think maybe it, 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 for you is it's what gives you the courage because you know, maybe so many of us worry, am I a bigot? Cause I'll say this. I was, I was an atheist till I was in my late twenties. Once I became a Christian, I realized I actually was a, a bigot. I was, um, how would I put this? I had like a real like uh, prejudice against the mm. LGBTQ community. I wouldn't have known it at the time, but it was in becoming mm. a Christian that I realized I was a bigot. Mm. If that makes any sense, I wouldn't have had any position well, one way or the other on same sex marriage or anything like that. But the truth is, if I look into my thoughts, my emotions, my feelings as a young man raised in the seventies and eighties, I would have been kind of a hateful bigot in becoming a Christian at the same time, I was beginning to kind of understand sexuality and its purpose, unitive and procreative, and what is it ordered to. At the same time, I was coming to understand that and have firm opinions on things like same-sex marriage. Um, I was also being having my bigotry emptied emptied out. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. But to oh, the totally. well, but I, to the world, I would have become a bigot. They would have never known my heart. They would have said, "Oh, what happened to Jason? Now he's a bigot." No, I actually was a bigot, and now I'm not. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to really enjoy the introduction because you missed out the first part of the story, which um, the, one of the reasons I got into this, like I said, is the world was lying about kids. Um, the, this narrative that kids didn't care if they lost their mom or dad. So that got into it. But the other thing was that bigotry, right? Bigotry, bigotry. You're a bigot. You're a bigot. No, you're a bigot. You know, if you don't support gay marriage, bigot, bigot, bigot. And so my first step into the foray of marriage and family was I started a blog called ask the bigot. And I'm like, I see how it is. (laughs) I see. I understand that no matter what I do, no matter how well reasoned, no matter how scientific, no matter how much social science I have behind me, no matter how well I love my gay family and friends, if I don't align perfectly with your political goals, I'm a bigot. Is that it? Oh, I see. Well, and come ask me all your questions, right? I am the bigot that you are in search of. And it was just so tongue-in-cheek, so absurd, because that was how absurd the world had become. That saying that kids need a mom and dad makes you a bigot to say, I can love my family and friends who are gay and lesbian. And when and was this? Was this how, how long ago was this? So this, is so just... this all started in 2012. So it wasn't um, even that bad then. I mean, we've gone light years ahead of that and towards just oh, totally. everyone's a bigot now. Yep. Yep. That's right. And, um, and I was outed. I, I wrote anonymously because I'm a chicken. I mean, you keep talking about I'm courageous, but I'm nope. I wrote anonymously because I know what these people will do to you and your family and everybody that you love. And so I started writing anonymously and then a very loving and tolerant gay blogger outed me and docked members of my church to try to Eesh. silence me. Um, and you know, it's such a, what the enemy means for evil kind of story because I'm like, well, now I can't write under my own name. So now I write amicus briefs for the Supreme court. And now I speak at the United Nations and now I travel to Taiwan and Australia and I'm going to head to the Czech Republic later this year. And now that's fine. Okay. So you meant to silence me, but you actually amplified my platform a hundredfold. Great work. So, um, yeah, I, the whole, they pushed you in, they pushed you in, they pushed you in the pool. And now you have to swim. Yeah, totally. You were just like, sitting, you were just like, putting on suntan lotion, watching everyone else swim. 
and blogging here <laughs> yeah. and there, and then he threw you in the pool, and you're like, oh, I'm in the pool. <laughs> I've had people be like, how did you get into this? And I'm like, uh, like the short answer is the left broke me. That's how. Well, I think <laughs> like, the short answer is like, a passionate love for children, right? Like you love yes. children. And by the way, I think even a lot of these people, even the blogger that so lovingly and compassionately doxed in you and outed you and caused trouble and for you and your relationship with your mom and friends, that loving person, I bet you even they, that guy, I don't know if it was a guy, they want what's best for children. They're just blinded by an idea. They're, they're, they're all, we're gaslighters and we're being gaslit. We're victims and we, we drink mm-hmm. the Kool-Aid and we serve the Kool-Aid. But I just think most of us, just like most of us aren't bigots, most of us really, really, really want what's best for children because we were all children and yeah. raised after the sexual revolution. I've you know raised after the worst world war, the worst war in history of man that shook the foundations of our civilization, the worst genocides in the history of mankind that, that shook. Uh, and then our parents were swept away by this nonsense with the sexual revolution and the pill and yada, yada. And here we are. And what you're just saying is let's remember the children. That's all. Right. Because we're That's the victims. Can, it's time I, to do hard things, people. Now, you have to pick up your son from swimming in how long? Um, track, okay, so the, yeah, there's all kinds of drop-off pickup, but I have to head out in about 10 minutes to, to do track meet work. Oh, I have swimming in 30. Three. You have track in 15. Can I end okay. on one last controversial thing? <laughs> yes. Okay. Oh, totally. Okay, so all the, controversy. I the, want the importance, um, there's, this, there's this YouTuber that a friend of mine just sent me. His name is Kevin Seamus, I think. And um, very bizarre YouTube channel. But my friend sent me this video, and in it he talked about that only 25% of black women will be married in their lifetime right now. And uh, that struck me as very sorrowful. And what does it mean for children? I was looking at the statistics of fatherlessness, which is now in in every community in America. Um, But the black family has specifically been, I believe, because of government policies, um, going all the way back to slavery, and then the great society has been shook to the core. Um, that's another subject that takes a lot of courage to talk about. You know, we're being told that uh, the patriarchy is what's brutalizing the black family. How can the patriarchy be at the source of the problems in the black family when we don't even have fathers in the family? And why aren't we yeah, allowed to talk not. about that? We're not allowed to even talk about this. How can we fix something right. we can't talk about? Yeah, that's so great. So we have a section in chapter one called Black Fathers Matter. Um, and I don't know about the 25% statistic of black women. It sounds possible, but I will say that 71% of kids who are born today um, are born to out of, black children are born to single mothers, 71%. So back when the civil rights um, legislation passed in 65, that number was at 25%. Right, seventy-five percent of kids of Martin Luther King Jr.'s generation had married moms, married moms and dads, and twenty-five percent did not. At that time, you had um, the Moynihan Report, which said this is a crisis. Twenty-five percent of Black children are being raised outside of a married mother-father home. This is a crisis. We need to do something. Well, now we are at seventy-one percent. Okay, a great so liberal. Through, uh, a great liberal Moynihan wrote this report. Yes. Yes, and now the most conservative alarmed. politicians wouldn't even have the courage to address this out loud. Yeah, that's right. 
And it's very important to recognize that this is not because our black brothers and sisters are incapable of forming and maintaining marriages. At the early, early 1900s, black women had higher marriage rates than white women. I mean, so the black family actually, despite centuries of slavery, despite Jim Crow, was a stronger, had stronger fabric than even white families did for so long. Um, but, you know, as we quote Thomas Sowell in our, in this section of the book, you know, the black family was able to survive centuries of slavery and Jim Crow, but they could not withstand the liberal welfare state. That is what destroyed the black family. And so now what do we have? You know, we've got black kids, you know, throughout the book, we talk about how there's three staples of a child's social emotional diet, three things that they have to have if they're going to be able to run this race of life, mother's love, father's love, and stability. And when you only have a mom, you know, a single mom, oftentimes you definitely don't have father's love and you often have instability as there is live-in boyfriends or, or stepfathers that join the family or then divorce strikes again. And so what, you know, black kids today, only 13% of black kids will make it to their high school graduation living only with their married mother and father. That means 87% of black kids are starving on some level in terms of their social emotional diet. We are starving, starving our black kids. There's no other way to put it, right? It does not matter how much Head Start programs you have or how many, how many like tutors that you give them in school if you do not have kids of any race nourished on the three staples that they need in their social emotional diet, mother's love, father's love, and stability. How do you expect them to succeed in school? How do you expect Katie, them to, to look, I, I, I'm a high school dropout. I was last in my class out of 565 students. I, my household was not stable. I, um, I didn't even go to school. I'd be drunk half the time in high school. I joined the army the day I turned 17 in the army. I started taking college classes as an infantryman. And I maintained a 3.9 GPA because there I had stability, right? Yeah. I had stability. Yeah. And so what you're saying is how do people not get this? That without a mother and a, and a lot of my instability was obviously caused by the chaos of divorce and remarriage, blended families, insecurity. I don't feel at home at this house. Don't feel at home at that house. The, these problems here, those problems there, these problems with them all together. How do we not get that? How do people, do you have like, so my Destiny De La Rosa, my friend who told me to, to reach out to you, she said a lot of feminists talk about this in private on the left, but they won't talk about it in public. Do you have allies uh, outside of this wonderful collective of folks you have in your organization, any organizations or people that are on the left that have the courage to talk about this, that will join with you and Thomas Sowell and others? Um, no. No, they won't because we take such a strong stance for traditional marriage. You know, we traditional marriage at its core is simply the only relationship that you that will give kids the three staples of their social emotional diet it is the only adult relationship that grants children mother's love father's love and stability that is why marriage is a social justice issue for children but you cannot say that on the left even if you believe it privately you can never say it out loud but the stories of kids and great social science is going to make that so clear and so evident. And so maybe in a decade or two, when the political football has been passed to some other cause, 
we will have no other choice but to recognize that there is no other family formation that grants kids the same level of love, stability, thriving, and protection as their own married mother and father. Social scientists already agree on it, but that natural truth will not be suppressed, right? You cannot, as my friend Doug Mainwaring says, you'll never be on the wrong side of history when you're on the right side of natural law. And natural law obviously tells us that men and women are different. Men and women make babies. Babies need the love of that man and woman and babies have a right to the love of that man and woman. And if as a society, we hope to do anything good for the whole health of society, but also the hearts of individual children, we will return to this truth that this singular relationship between a man and a woman married together for life to the exclusion of all others is actually the social justice issue that is going to resolve all other social justice issues that we're battling against in our world today. That's it. And there's no one in the world more vulnerable than our children from here to Sudan, right? And uh, with the breakdown of the family, they've become ever more vulnerable. I think your organization is just one of the most amazing organizations in the world. I loved your book. I'm going to put everything in the show notes. And um, thank you for what you're doing. For how You say you don't have any courage. You have a lot of courage. Thank you for what you're doing. And I think you have to get to track practice. <laughs> I totally do. Thank you for letting me talk to your listeners. So I, I really appreciate it. And um, thanks for having this platform. Um, next time you're in Hawaii, let me know and I'll pop over. I'll be in Hawaii, sadly, sadly, I'll be in, I'm going to Hawaii next week for a funeral, um, but I'm there quite ah, a bit, so, um, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll give you a heads well, up. safe travels. All right, and um, again, you know, the motto of the show is to be in solidarity with the vulnerable is to become vulnerable, so I look for people who serve the vulnerable to the point of their own vulnerability, which you have most definitely done, and um, so thank you very much for your work. Um, thank you. Thank you, Jason. All right, God bless. Aloha. Okay, she's going, Katie, you can go off to swimming. I'm going to put this on mute so we don't hear her beep off. Um, you know, one of the things. Text me if you have any other questions or any need anything else. Okay, I'll text you. Send me anything you want me to put in the show notes. Yeah, just a link to the book would probably be best and a link to the website, which is kind of book light. So, yeah, perfect. Okay, awesome. Thanks, Jason. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. I think she didn't know I was still on the air. Okay, guys, we are still on the air, and uh, we will. Um, I will text her and get those notes for the show. I just want to say this. You know, I was my mom had me at 16. So glad she did. So glad she didn't abort me. So glad my grandma went to London on vacation, which was not prudent, you know, because she was gone, and they went in. It's 1971, and, you know. The age of Aquarius, they did what they did. Here I am. There was no abortion, right? But there was a broken home, and it was quite the wild ride. I mean, no more or less wild, I think, than the average family than today. But, you know, for the time, my mom got remarried, had some kids, and yada, 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 divorce, remarry, kids. And um, and then I got married at 18 and then divorced at, like, 24 and so, you know, the, the cycle continued and then even in, in my marriage now, because I think in my mom and dad combined have had, let's see here, five, six, seven, eight, nine divorces, I think, between the two of them, nine divorces between the two of them. And so for me, marriage is quite the challenge, you know, it was, uh, 
Um, and then we date, you know, our generation, we dated like marriage. So our, our, our dating relationships were, were practically marriages and then they end. So the way we dated was practice for divorce and we we're raised in divorce. I'm not pointing the fingers at anyone. I know for me, it has been the challenge of challenges. Like let's put our children first. Like for me, it's like, you know, I have to um, serve my children. I exist to serve my children and serve my posterity, but that is quite the challenge. And we, there's so much to touch on in this book from reproductive technology to no fault divorce. I even think with COVID, with these mask mandates for children, we're making children who we know uh, the masks on a child that they're not keeping their masks clean and they're growing and they're developing and we're making them wear masks six, seven hours a day for something that probably is going to be absolutely harmless to them to quote unquote protect adults. Again, we're sacrificing the health of the child for adults. Um, that's not in her book. But there's a lot in this book, um, them before us. And I think we should all ask ourselves, have we lived our lives where we put our children before us? Now, you baby boomers, I give you a pass because you were told a whole bunch of nonsense. This is my pass for the baby boomers. Whenever you baby boomers and y'all are crazy, the craziest generation so far since Adam and Eve, maybe they were the craziest. Okay, so they're Adam and Eve. They were the craziest. There was only two of them, right? And then there's the baby boomers. You all, all of you are absolutely insane. From what I understand, the highest rate of STD transmission today is the baby boomers, okay? Y'all are still crazy. But this is why I forgive you. A, you were born on the edge of the most brutal war in the history of mankind. So as a generation... Your trust in the political authority, the religious authority, the cultural authority was shaken. Right out the womb, you couldn't trust anyone because you were born on the edge of insanity, okay? And then uh, we talk about the World War II generation being the greatest generation, and in many ways they were in the English-speaking world, but were they the greatest generation in Germany and Italy and Japan and even in America where... Was the World War II generation the greatest generation? I mean, they're the ones that gave us Roe v. Wade, the birth control pill. Uh, they were the ones controlling the media companies that were were slinging filth at the baby boomers when they were children, right? I mean, the baby boomers give themselves credit for all of the things that happened when they were children, but that wasn't them, right? That was the silent generation and the uh, greatest generation, the World War II generation. So... um. So I'm, th I'm all over the place. But what I'm trying to say is you baby boomers, you, you, were, you were traumatized by war and genocide. It, it was a culture shock. And, and then you were told, once you were young and you got married, you were told this, that if it makes you happy, the kids will be happy. You were told that, right? If you're not happy in your marriage, um, the best way to make your children happy would be to leave your wife or your secretary I mean, that would make you happy. So if you're happy, your kids would be happy, right? Or whatever. That's what you were told. And I really do think you believed it. And, and so um, you were traumatized by the culture, lied to, you believed it. And then my generation, we were there, right? Like in the middle of all this insanity, the first generation to sort of where everyone around you's parents are getting divorced, right? So um, I was lucky that I, my parents, I think were married. I, I don't know this, 
but I think they were maybe for a couple months. But regardless, I don't think we ever lived in the same house. I never lived with the two of them, I believe. Maybe I did when I was like one to three months old or something. So I never experienced the trauma of divorce of my own parents, although I saw lots of divorces with my parents. Uh, but I witnessed every kid I knew from like the third grade to the ninth grade. I watched as every family got divorced. Wow, that was quite traumatizing. And now, as we know, it, it's in every community. So I hope no one feels like we're pointing our fingers. This is all of us. Uh, I wanted to have Katie Faust on because I think this is a great book. I think in everything from COVID to reproductive technologies um, to how we just choose to live our lives as adults, oftentimes we're sacrificing our children for ourselves. And if we want to live a life in service of the vulnerable, there's no one more vulnerable in our immediate community, in our immediate family than children. So let's live our life. Let's put children before ourselves, right? That's just the way it's always been done, and that's the way it always should be. It's the way we should always do it. I, I got to get my son to swimming because that's what dads have to do. And then I give him the pep talk, like, don't lose a lap. That's what I always say. Don't lose. I don't care if you, you can't even lose a lap. We're Joneses. We don't even lose laps. It's not enough to win the race. You have to win every lap. So I have to go give him one of my cheesy pep talks as we drive to the pool. This episode has been brought to you by Movie to Movement, creating a culture of life, love, and beauty through the power of film. Check out our latest movie, Divided Hearts of America. It's on Amazon. It's at Redbox, wherever you download your films. You can find our movie, Divided Hearts of America. Also, this episode is being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the vulnerable from the child in the womb to the child in Darfur. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. It's our big fundraiser month. Our goal is to raise 50000 Our fundraising for the spring, our fundraising drive. We're at about 10000 Our goal is fifty for the quarter. Uh, go to thegreatcampaign.org and show us your support. And as always... This episode is being brought to you by MyPillow. Don't forget, for uh, you go to the website, MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, and for a very limited time, with the code JONES, you can get the amazing MyPillow slippers for 40% off. And there are also deep, deep discounts on all of the other great MyPillow products. So check out MyPillow.com. Until next time the Jason Jones Show. Go into the show notes and check out all the great resources. Aloha. This has been the Jason Jones Show. Powered by Mudhouse Media. Ooh, 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 ooh.